Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, July 6, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all around the planet, we have an almost full crew, uh, Erica, Tiff, Doug, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. We are missing Gabby today, so we wish her well, and hopefully we'll talk to her next week. Uh, so today, our topic is gaming. Game over. Is video game addiction ruining lives? Um, so I think, you know, it's generally understood that there are people who game too much, but I think most people kind of think of it as an innocuous thing compared to other issues that we have in our society. Um, however, uh, it's, it's quite huge. I mean, as if, I don't mean to imply that people don't know this, but I think there are some people that don't, that the industry made $36 billion in 2017, which is quite a chunk. Uh, and that recently the World Health Organization added gaming disorder to its manual of disease classifications. Uh, so now uh, gaming addiction is now up there with gambling addiction. And uh, I guess I'm curious, what do you guys think about how prevalent it is as far as like, because I, I can say I've known three people that were serious hardcore gaming addicts. But that's mm -hmm. when you think about the percentage of, of people that I've known in my life. I mean, it's it's a fair number. Yeah. I don't know if I've known anybody who I would necessarily consider a full-on addict. Mm -hmm. Like, I know people who were avid gamers who, like, would play quite regularly. But it never got to the point where, like, they just kind of dropped out of society and I never saw them anymore or anything like that. Like, it, mm. I can't say that I necessarily ever knew anybody. But, I mean, you read in the news about them all the time. Mm. Yeah. Or at least sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, of course, there are some edge cases that we'll talk about today. Uh, by and large, it's a... It, oh, sorry, Tiff, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think I know any gamers either. I'm like scanning my memory banks. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm the only person I know that used to play <laughs> video games. Well, my aunt, back in the video game arcade days, this was like maybe in the 80s, she would go to the video arcade and be in there for hours drinking Pepsi and playing Pac-Man. <laughs> and then I would play as a teenager. But I don't I don't know what the cutoff is between being like a gamer gamer in quotes or just somebody who plays video games every now and then. Uh, yeah, I, I know I knew. So go ahead, Erica. Oh, I was just going to say like in the 80s and even the early 90s, like going to a video game arcade, it was you only had a certain amount of money that you mm -hmm. could really spend. And so it, it wasn't like, well, maybe people spent 12 hours there. But, you know, it seemed like it was cost prohibitive for, for young mm. teenage yeah. <laughs> teenagers. Sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm quite a bit younger um, than most of the other hosts. So... For me, my sort of childhood was in the late 90s and sort of throughout the 2000s. And, um, and there were, I can think of quite a couple of people um, that I went to school with. And as we got into sort of high school, um, I guess you would, you, would, you would define them as gamers, hardcore gamers, in, in, in so much that they were completely identified with gaming that was uh, that seemed to make up the majority of their conversation the majority of 
uh, how they define themselves was was had to do with their status in the gaming world and they did all these weird competitions and things i never really understood it because i was sort of too busy out playing in the garden <laughs> and stuff like that and um going outside but yeah that there were there were people who also go to these conventions like these weird gaming convention conventions i say weird i get i've never well, really been to up. one but yeah, they, there's there's this whole community, um, and I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what it's called. But they they all have meetings, like national meetings, and and I think they do it all throughout the world. And they dress up as the characters, and then they compare stats and things like that. And I'm not sure if most of those are gaming addicts or whether that's just something that they enjoy. But mm-hmm. that's the closest thing that I think I've come to witnessing a gaming addict. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it is, it is, it's kind of like, I guess you could almost compare it to like poker in that there are people who are actually career video game players in the same way that you have people who are career uh, poker players. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like you hear about in, in Korea, them having like filling stadiums of people just watching people play video games. It's like a big, huge spectator sport. Like there's the World Cup on right now. Well, you know, there's the World Cup of like, you know, Star World of Warcraft. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Like they they just sit there and they watch people play video games, which doesn't sound super entertaining to me. But I don't know. I, I know I don't know if you could you. say that those people are addicted necessarily, because yeah. you know, would you say that uh, a a career poker player is addicted to poker? I mean, maybe in some cases, but yeah. Well, I really think that there are levels in this and Elliot I think the distinction that you made is pretty important as far as people who identify as gamers versus like it being a problem uh, I think of games in other sense too like I have friends who are into uh, board games like Pirates of or Settlers of Catan sorry and that kind of thing like um, you know sort of like role playing games uh, I have one buddy in high school who like developed his own role playing game and uh, wow. of course D&D back in the day and that kind of thing yeah. Uh, so that was a whole thing, but I think that a lot of those people are and/or turned out to be like really highly talented, you know, engineers and, and mathematicians and things like that. So can you really yeah. say that it was that damaging? Uh, but uh, yeah, there is there there's different classifications. I've known one guy who I I can't say that we were close friends, but I knew him tangentially who was like a full blown edge case, weighed probably 400 plus pounds. And would Whoa. sit and play EverQuest just all day. He was on disability. Yeah, and that was the only EverQuest. thing he did, you know. And and just as gross as you can imagine, let your imagination run wild. <laughs> wow. Um, so that was one guy. I you know I've had other friends who would do this, like they'd take, you know, Red Bull and Monster and Five Hour Energy in order to stay up for 20 hours in game, that kind of thing. Uh, now, granted, in a lot of those cases, they would plan. They'd have two days off of work, so they'd do that, and that's what they did instead of going fishing or to the beach or whatever. So, you know, at a certain level, it's a personal choice, and that's not what I would choose. Um, but there are cases where I think over time that becomes really damaging. You lose a lot of money. You lose friends. You lose the ability to, to focus or improve yourself, you know, in life. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess there's a, there's a, there's a difference between... Uh... A hobby gamer and a person who actually has a problem mm-hmm. 
and it seems like that line is maybe a little bit blurry sometimes it's like uh it it seems like um there did I get cut off no you're here just you guys still there okay nope, there. Uh, I think that was me muting okay my bad my bad um and I forgot what I was gonna say so well, let me give the who's <laughs> definition of a gaming disorder. They say it's similar to gaming addiction, and it means that the person is unable to control how often they play the video game. They give the activity priority over everything else in their life. They persist in gaming despite negative consequences. Uh, this must have been going on for at least a year, and the effects have to be severe enough to result and significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So that's from the who. Who? <laughs> it's always a tricky thing, though, because, like, when you're talking about things like addiction, because, you know, my, I guess my kind of perspective on it before, before I started kind of reading more about this was that, you know, you could really get addicted to anything like i mean i remember there was like an issue around like you know early part of the century where um comic books were considered like a really bad thing and that they were worried about kids becoming addicted to comic books and like you know i i just think there's a lot of different things that people can kind of get obsessed with and get really kind of over the top um absorbed in to the detriment of other things within their life so I guess one question is, and I think I kind of already have an idea of what the answer is to this, but I'll put it out to you guys. Do you think there's anything about video games in particular that make them more likely to become an addiction as opposed to, say, you know, stamp collecting? Yes. What? Well, yeah, yes. The, uh, the stimuli <laughs> is a lot higher. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure of the... Uh, the, t the technical terms for what's happening there, but the, the input and the stimuli coming from a game, I would think would render a person less able to fight it than stamps. <laughs> I, I think that's a, no, it's a very good question, and I think it can be approached from multiple different levels. Um, I would say that one way to look at this, or to approach this, might be to look at um how i guess in 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 terms of modern games um and i'm sure people got addicted to pac-man which was an old game but modern games are they in any way um developed with the aim of uh, producing a sort of uh, or fostering an addictive tendency in its users and sure. i think the answer to that question is yes um, yeah. And when you look at a lot of the companies who do actually develop these games, they design them. They hire um, certain scientists. Um, I remember reading one of the articles for the show, actually. I can't find exactly what the guy specialized in, but it was talking yeah. about one of the big companies who hired a, a brain scientist, basically like someone who, who was had a PhD in brain and behavioral neuroscience or something yeah. like that mm -hmm. to basically consult with them on how to design a game which would interact with the brain 
of the user in such a way that it would foster um, certain behavioural characteristics which are uh, characteristic of of a, an addiction almost, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the big difference between old video games and modern video games, like you used to just buy a video game console and you'd buy games and you'd own them and you would just play until you got sick of it. But now you can go online and join all of these organizations and a lot of these games have monthly membership fees where you have to pay every month and you can join guilds and interact with other players in real time. It's a whole different world compared to sitting in your mother's basement playing Atari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you still you're might be sitting like, in your mother's basement, but yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. It is, it is a completely different world. And you're actually buying virtual goods within the game itself. So it's completely different. The, the way that they do it is that they've almost tried to merge reality with this virtual reality. Um, and in so much that you can reap real rewards. Um, so say you introduce money into it, and so they play for money. Um, they play for real life um, benefits. But then also you can invest your own real life uh, money into gaining benefits on the game like in it put in another way uh, an old game say like pac-man or something there is clearly a disconnect between your own life and the game mm-hmm. there's 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 not many points where the two connect and so it would be easier to switch off from that almost it's like pac-man resi- resides in pac-man reality and i access that when i turn on the machine whereas the way it's going now is that actually you are interacting with this virtual reality gaming world on multiple different levels and so if you look at it from a sensory perspective well there's like virtual reality headsets whereby your movement can actually change the experience that you're um, experiencing in the game and likewise you can speak to each other via headsets and and, and there's all of this stuff coming out now so it's the the level of um, participation has has grown to the extent that both of these realities uh, merge almost somewhat and I think that that is when it really can become dangerous because people might lose track or or lose sight of where this reality ends and and the virtual reality ends if that makes if if you understand what I'm saying mm-hmm. well there's also the thing about picking characters in a video game I mean you can't pick your pac-man but you can you be can, Miss Pac-Man. Like if you play World of Warcraft, which I've never played, I've just read about, you can pick a character and you know nurture it and make it grow and become more powerful and invest all this energy in building up this persona of this character that interacts with people all over the world. And most people aren't going to want to just give that up after they put so much time and effort into creating this virtual person. Yeah. I don't know if I would use the word nurtured to describe it, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, it's kind of like, it's, a, it's the idea of investment, right? Like it's, it's like mm-hmm. one of the articles you read was talking about how like some people will be 
you know, just kind of like, why would you spend all that time and possibly money and energy into gaining like something that doesn't exist? You know, like say in World of Warcraft to get like some amazing sword. Um, and it's like they, they they're like they, they're kind of baffled by that. Like, why would you do that? But realistically, I mean, anything has value. It's just the value that's kind of put into it, and anything that requires effort for you to gain and requires resources for you to be able to to um, to to get, then obviously it's going to have value. And within the world of that video game, it has a great deal of value. So it kind of makes sense that people would be. It, it's kind of like hijacking. Um, that kind of brain um, architecture that that will value some, you know p- place value onto something that is valuable in the real world and it kind of hijacks that and suddenly you know this virtual thing that's not a it's just a bunch of ones and zeros has a great deal of value. I have to think that the community aspect of it is partially what makes like Tiff kind of what you had mentioned what makes it more appealing. Um, I mean, I played a fair amount of console games by myself, you know, Tony Hawk, that kind of thing, or Mario, and, and like, the I, I played the original Nintendo quite a bit, but um, I never got into the, like, MMORPG, like, the massive multiplayer stuff, but I, I have friends that have, and it seems appealing, especially if you don't have a social network, and I think that that's, and I don't mean, like, Facebook social network, I mean, like, a real one, <laughs> um, but, uh, I think that that's a, a, a big problem that's endemic of like the uh, all the issues that we see with social media too nowadays where people are more and more isolated um, but they're reaching out for community you know over the internet and gaming uh, is so the experience is so powerful that when you combine that with you know community and you're playing with people like I know a guy who um, made fr- like fast strong friends with a guy in a different country who he's never met and hopes to meet someday. But I mean, they're essentially like best friends, and they met over, uh, you know, Steam gaming. So I, I do, I, I want to do a little bit of devil's advocate. I think there's some validity to that relationship that was formed. You know, it's a human connection. It's a real thing. Um, but it's you got to see both sides of the coin. Um, you know, so I personally think that, like, let's say for an example, an experience. Like if you go out in nature and you just walk around and say you don't pick any berries or you don't do anything that like you don't get anything back necessarily in material goods, you just the experience. So the same thing with gaming. <clears throat> you go and do that experience and that's rewarding to you because you enjoy it. So personally, I think that the experience in nature is like more valid or whatever in my own value system, but other people don't. So, <clears throat> you know. I, I guess uh, I, has, I, I kind of stop at arguing that my value system is better, even though I personally think it is, but I hesitate to argue that because it's <laughs> like, you know, if if somebody is maintaining a job and keeping their house clean and they have meaningful relationships and they game and that's where their relationships come from, it's like, who am I to say? But then there are <clears throat> cases where it becomes damaging, you know? And I do think that on the whole, that over time, and I think we might even be seeing this now, that that multiplied by many, many, many millions of people uh, is going to cause a larger problem in society, just simply due to the fact that people don't have any experience in, in, in normal things. I mean, I'm not talking about like Boy Scout skills. I mean, just normal daily, you know, how, how to do laundry, like that kind of stuff. Um, so 
I yeah, think I think it could be a problem. It's. I think. I think you're right. I think you kind of have gotten into something there because it's interesting that there does seem to be kind of. I don't. It's. It's like a, a fuzzy line, you know, where it's kind of like, can we say that video games have absolutely no value whatsoever? Well, I mean, you give the example of the guy who's basically has a, a best friend in a different country. He never would have been able to meet that guy if it weren't for video games. So there probably are some benefits. I mean, some people people love to bring up like hand-eye coordination and things like that and like mm-hmm. speeding up your brain and all these kinds of things. And I do think that maybe puzzle games and certain uh, virtual environments can help with spatial intelligence and that sort of thing. But I think the problem is that, and maybe this gets into kind of all... Um, addictive uh, type things it's like it, you know what why are p- some people getting addicted to this and they are mm-hmm. starting to kind of leave um, neglect uh, other parts of their life um, in order to escape and I think maybe escape has kind of a lot to do with it that some people are you know it's not that they're just gaming because it's kind of fun and they get to meet people and stuff like that, but they still go out and meet people in the real world and still interact and still have a life versus people who cut themselves off entirely or Mm -hmm. almost entirely. um, And suddenly they are relying on that for that kind of social connection. I think that's where you start to get into the real damaging aspects of it. Sure. Yeah, because when you think about it, games are ubiquitous throughout society from... The very young to the very old, like old people play card games, mahjong, shuffleboard, bunch of stuff. Bridge. Like people <laughs> throughout their entire lives play games. But I think we're seeing something a lot different with these video games. And it's especially striking because a lot of young white males are these so called addicts. And what is it they're trying to escape? What connections are they lacking? That they have to escape reality and sequester themselves off and just play video games all the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think this, <clears throat> it crosses over in a really interesting way to the, how do you say it, like the socio-political sphere that's kind of going on right now. Like a lot of, like you mentioned, the young white men, male, I guess they're not, a lot of them aren't men yet, but uh, young white male gamers are the like uh you know the kekistanis uh or like guys who like post they troll with pepe and that kind of stuff and they're not like <clears throat> they're not like the uh the actual dangerous radical fringe but they're they're graffiti artists online they're trolls mm-hmm. you know and i think that that is also that reflects uh a lot of the uh the dissatisfaction it, it I don't know how to say what I'm thinking. It's it, it, it's a metaphor for why they've gotten into gaming. They've gotten into gaming because the things that are around them in their life or in their childhood or however were not as satisfying, not as stimulating as the games. The games became more rewarding, more stimulating than what is in normal life. Uh, in the same way as then, like say when they come up for air and they look around them and they realize that the world around them has now rejected them because they're an outcast they're a gamer you know so like Mm. it's like well if you guys i'm just gonna stay over here on this side of the line now you know and it becomes that like a recalcitrant teenager kind of attitude and i think that that um is part of the isolation that's what i guess to, to put it more clearly that's why i tend to do the devil's advocate thing with gaming because i think in a sense 
a lot of people who are stuck in that could be reached out to in the sense of say like hey come and hang out or like let's go to a show or go have dinner somewhere or whatever and get them out of the house and get them working a little more in the world is probably possible but they need someone to establish that connection with them um, <clears throat> so I think it's important not to just sequester uh, uh, and I'm not saying you guys are doing this or that we are um, but not to sequester a group of people based on their their interest because you know like everybody finds themselves attracted into a thing that they find rewarding and in in a lot of cases those things can be damaging no matter what like Gabor Mate talks about being addicted to buying classical music well how is that a problem because it distracted him from things that were important in his life to the point where and he say that he left his wife in labor to go buy CDs or I don't want to misspeak but I think it was similar to that so anything can be damaging um, but yeah I do think that the uh, these young dissatisfied people they find satisfaction in gaming so you know where and why is that coming from uh, or, or where is that coming from and why I think well, someone question. someone in the chat just asked an interesting question about whether um, those people who are addicted to these games actually may have impaired social skills um, sure. and so that may be why they're drawn to gaming I think that would make sense perhaps um, like as you said, different people are. We're, we're all uh, um, attracted to those things which we find rewarding, and it's highly individual. And perhaps a, a common theme theme among people who are attracted to the to the gaming to the extent that they become completely obsessed with it. Almost um, perhaps that is maybe that has something to do with their individual lack of social skills, their inability to communicate with other human beings and form bonds and um, and actually experience what it's like to have relationships with people um, and perhaps um, perhaps you know when you're behind a screen or when you're on a microphone headset you um, it lifts the barrier almost perhaps that's the only way that they feel comfortable interacting with others um, I'm not sure. I think that would make sense, though. Well, the CDC says right. that the average gamer is depressed, introverted, and overweight. So the question becomes, like, is gaming the problem, or is it just the symptom of other mental health problems? Like, if they're depressed or have some other problem, maybe they are fi they're finding an outlet in games. And it's not really the gaming that needs to be addressed per se versus all the other things that go into why they are gaming and why they lack connection. Sure. But here's the thing. I mean, you have to look at the gaming itself as well, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I do think that there's some truth to what you guys are saying. But I do also think that because, like we were talking about, the games have been designed specifically to, you know, give a jolt to actually like they, they are actually making them to be addictive like you know the sign of a good game is when it is something that you want to play over and over again like it has that addictive quality i mean all the psychological little things that they put in there to keep you playing to keep you going and just the fact that it ramps you up so much i mean they are you know specifically designing uh games to cause like an adrenal response to put you into this like super hyper stimulated mindset 
So I think, you know, it might be that, yes, it could be that these people were already kind of like socially isolated and uh, were socially awkward, perhaps. And they're finding that that video games are a good place. But then, you know, maybe they then why aren't they like, you know, going online and just like playing some sort of innocuous game? You know, it's like one that isn't like an adrenaline fueled insanity fest. Mm -hmm. It's really these like first person shooters and like, um, you know, the really the ones that really tend to ramp you up and, and give you that that crazy response that seem to be the ones that people get hooked on. I think. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just yeah, looking at, yeah. <clears throat> pertaining to what you were saying there. Excuse me. Uh, I was just looking at uh, one of the articles that we had up for the show. Uh, five creepy ways video games are trying to get you addicted. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, you know they they do do specific techniques uh, as far as you know pulling you into the game. So <clears throat> uh, the kind of the carrot and stick you know, creating a reward that gives you a dopamine hit as you achieve that, even though it has no real value. Um, things like, uh, what was one of them here? Putting you in a skinnier box. Skinner box. Uh, Skinner box, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so That's... each contingency is an arrangement of time, activity, and reward, and there are an infinite number of ways that these elements can be combined to produce the pattern of activity you want from your players. So yeah. I think that's a telling phrase in itself, the pattern of activity that you want from your players. Like, um, <clears throat> I do think some, like I saw a lecture one time from a guy who had designed, uh, and I can't remember the name of the game. It is actually in this, it was the first video game that was put in the Smithsonian. Uh, and it's a, um, it's an immersive world. There's no interface per se. You do everything through, through gestures and then you play with one other person and it follows the hero's journey. So it was really interesting to hear this guy <clears throat> talk about how he developed the game because he actually got really emotional as he was talking about it because he had moved from China to the United States with no money, very intelligent young man, and decided to do this game and poured all of his time and effort into it and it got huge and it was a huge success. And it's based, it's literally based on the hero's journey. So he, run, he, he you know, runs you through these highs and lows. And I sincerely don't think that he was like, you know, twittering his fingers together saying, I'm going to addict people to my game, you know. Uh, right. I honestly don't think that at all. Uh, I think he actually made a really, really cool uh, experience. And it was based off a very emotional story and it was full of chock full of meaning, you know. Um, so it was really cool. But that's not all the games. That's probably why that one ended up in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing because I think there is actually a, an art in video games. Like I think there are video game designers out there and I think they usually tend to be independents who aren't working for like studios. Yeah. And they make some unbelievably like beautiful and interesting games that are thought provoking and there can be really complex narratives and character developments and that kind of thing. Like I think in some ways some people are like using this medium kind of as the next step in what cinema is right now. You know, yeah. it's kind of like an interactive movie and I think you know and some of the puzzles that are involved and stuff like that that really get you thinking like I do think that there are some video games that are actually quite well they're like works of art essentially and yeah. I, I think that there there needs to be a differentiation because those aren't the games people are getting addicted to you know what I mean right like I right, think that right. uh, that the, the the addictive property is is something quite different yeah well it's uh, everything I think 
it's just occurred to me that the, the potential for addiction in, in various arenas is ramping up and up and up and up. Like when you mm-hmm. think about media entertainment, like so for quite a, you know, not quite a while relative to human history, but in our own lives, we've had films, like you said, and there have been a lot of people who have been addicted to movies, uh, either watching them at home or going to the theater or now binging online with streaming services and stuff. Um, that's been an issue. <clears throat> And now we come into uh, video games, and now we're moving from these incredibly powerful games. Just on a two-dimensional screen, you're still like, holy crap, you know, is that real? Uh, And now we're moving into virtual reality, and that's Mm going to be even more potent. And then you look at other things, I think, that are addictive, like in the lines of drugs, you know, it's gone from... Uh, you know, uh, heroin to synthetic opiates, not a fentanyl, which is killing people en masse. Um, like in all areas of society, these things that are have addiction potential are becoming more and more powerful. And I think mm-hmm. gaming is, is coming in line with that. So there is, just like with anything, just like with, uh, you know, speaking of drugs, like with chemistry. Chemistry itself as a science is an incredibly beautiful thing. It can also make deadly lethal drugs, you know. So this art that's involved in creating an experience that some people do sincerely and actually try to put out some something meaningful uh, you know you can also make something incredibly destructive from that and I think your comment about the studios was was accurate because once you get this like corporate behemoth going you know and mm-hmm. the goal is to raise profits by 10% from last year then you're mm-hmm. you're gonna do that you know instead of making an experience yeah should we go to a clip yeah, yeah. So, this is from a video online called uh, Gaming Addiction Rehab. So this is the first part of that. I'm Ahmed Shahbaldin, and I've been looking into the dark side of tech, from facial recognition to fake news. I wanted to understand how companies design addictive games that maximize profit. The global market for games grew from $70 billion in 2012 to $122 billion in 2017. By comparison, global box office revenue for films in 2017 was $41 billion. We're in Boston at one of the biggest gaming conventions in America, maybe even the world. And uh, I don't know where to focus or where to look. Gaming has gotten so big that watching others play attracts massive crowds and two-thirds of American households now play video games, according to the Entertainment Software Association. Do you play a lot of games still? Uh, yes, not as much as I used to. Why? Time. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how much would you when you were playing a lot of games? Like, uh, I mean, I would say like 30 hours a week at most, but that's it. Yeah, I know, right? Why, is that not a those lot? numbers <laughs> up. Those are rookie numbers. Why, do you play still? Yeah, for sure. How? I'd probably say at least. 50 hours a week. Wow. Pretty much all my free time. All your free time? Yeah. Does it ever, I mean, is it tough? Do you ever, like, lose track of time? Some games can definitely kind of let you lose, make you lose track of time more than others. Um, but it's definitely harder to balance kind of work life, personal life, and video games. I kind of cut out the personal life part, focus more on the video games currently. <laughs> Do you ever feel addicted to these games? Or one game in particular? Because, like, I understand, like, some games, like, you know, they'll make me, like, really upset. It's like, okay, I need to step away, do something else. One study estimated that 9% of teen gamers are addicted. 
With an estimated 2.6 billion people playing video games globally, it's not a limited issue. After I heard that the World Health Organization was classifying gaming disorder as a mental health condition this month, my reporting brought me to a gaming rehab near Seattle. You spent eight weeks here. Yeah. I was playing, on average, between like 12 to 16 hours a day. So it would just be, I would either be playing video games, watching porn, watching some show, or I would be sleeping. That was it. Every day? Yeah. John Jones is in phase two of the program, living in an apartment provided by Restart, but free to roam the real world. A flip phone to start out with, mm -hmm. and no computer use would only be at corporate in the computer lab. Mm -hmm. My main excuse of rationalizing was like, I'm only playing so much just because I'm, because I'm depressed, and that's why. Like, if I wasn't depressed, I wouldn't be playing. Do you think games are designed to be addictive? Yeah, and even like, you while we're... You didn't even hesitate. Hillary Cash founded Restart after seeing patterns related to gaming and screen addiction. My first case was in um, 1994, and you know, throughout the 90s, you know, people were coming in uh, for therapy. And parents are handing their devices to their kids, and it's going to really impact their development and and prime them for addiction. Even if they're not addicted, they're going to be primed for it. So I think it is a growing problem. The initial seven weeks of resident care at Restart cost nearly $30,000, but Charlie Brackey said it changed his life. Did you feel anxious, shaky? Very much so. There, there's very, very real physical withdrawal symptoms to video gaming. How serious a problem is this? I was so depressed that I started researching how to kill myself on my phone because I couldn't get up and go to the computer to do so. There are concerns about the effect of games on kids, since nearly half of gamers are under 18 and mostly male. And teens who spend five hours a day gaming are 71% more likely to be at risk for suicide than those who spend less than one. It just kind of spiraled out of control until I was gaming 16 hours a day. There are a few screen rehabs, and experts are divided on the best routes to health. Though at Restart, a complete digital detox is required. I don't play games at all. Um, if it's digital and gaming, I don't touch it. Um, so I don't even allow myself, like, Sudoku on my phone. Gaming used to be all about personal computers and consoles. You'd buy a game outright and play it. Then smartphones came along. Well, did that cut mm. off? I guess that was the end uh, of that first clip. <laughs> so, man, that was pretty fascinating. I mean, 50 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. There's Sometimes people who I, rebel if they had to work a job for 50 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. But an interesting I, thing was is that uh, they mentioned being depressed a couple times, but the one guy mentioned he would either be gaming or watching porn, so I wonder how often the two of those go hand in hand. Probably quite a bit, I would imagine. I mean, I would think that that would be endemic of part of the, uh, the desire for companionship. I think that's a, a lot of what drives lonely men to porn, you know. Um, they get depressed, they get in that cycle, and that's one, not, of course, the only driving factor, but one of them, and that would tie into why they would game so much as well. Uh, From a, a nutritional standpoint, or like a, you know, physiological standpoint, 
you could also make the case that uh, people who are <laughs> depressed or who seek out these kinds of um, you know stimulating activities porn um, gaming you know typically fit the picture of what is known as a low dopamine state so uh, the nervous system or the brain utilizes a chemical called dopamine uh, this provides uh, lots of different things that relate to how we experience reality but one of them is is providing motivation to complete tasks and also uh, contributing to, to fulfillment and, and, and things like that generally and so uh, it, it could be said that the diet and the lifestyle that these people have um, probably fosters the I don't want to say a chemical imbalance, but let's just say abnormal uh, brain chemicals. Uh, and I would say that that probably predisposes someone towards seeking out uh, stimulating things like that to give them a kick, you know, to, to make them feel alive somewhat because, they're, because they're, their body is not, not working as it should, you know. Yeah. That's just that's just one aspect of this. I don't want sure, to try and reduce it to merely chemicals, but I think that it probably contributes. Yeah, it contributes to the cycle once you get into it. I found that interesting that the cost of rehabilitation is so high. Did they say thirty thousand dollars for for nine weeks or something like that? Yeah. And that basically. Um, just getting the support to disconnect to go through those uh, digital detox. I mean, to have to pay that kind of money to get the support to just go outside or to to have a flip yeah. phone as opposed to a smartphone. Yeah. You know that I mean, that might... seems concerning to me, and um, you know that that, and maybe that is why the World Health Organization has kind of added this gaming disorder because I mean in my life I don't, as we talked about early in, in the show I don't see a lot of people that have a gaming disorder but maybe I'm just not a, around a large enough population to actually see it but I have seen it in kids and it does grow if it's not kind of controlled so to speak mm -hmm. or if there's not limitations put on it Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I think my mic was not working for a second there. One thing that I found interesting in that clip was the guy said that when he was doing his complete digital detox, is he won't even play Sudoku on his phone. And that kind of made me think like, hmm, because I know I've gone through times in the past where like I was playing a lot of Spider Solitaire on my computer, yeah. or like there's all these like kind of little games that you know people don't usually just think of as being like harmless and stuff like I know some people I never went there myself but a lot of people were really hooked on that Farmville game yeah. uh, that was on Facebook for a while and like I, I don't know the other ones but I used to see people playing one on the on the subway all the time so it's just these kind of like these little like time waster kind of games but it seems like you know they kind of work on the same mechanism 
So, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever going to have to go to rehab for playing Farmville, but uh, it does seem like it's kind of working on that same idea and that the addictive pen, uh, addictive tendency is still there. Oh, Candy yeah. Crush. Yeah, somebody wrote it in the chat. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Well, it really rose to the forefront, I think, of everybody's awareness with Pokemon Go. And that was... Yeah. Uh, and remember how weird that was just like it's almost like it's not a thing anymore i mean i'm sure people are still playing it but there was it was a two years ago in the summer it was like the only thing anybody talked about and yeah. people were getting hit by cars and walking off of docks Cliffs. And, yeah <laughs> <clears throat> but i mean I, a certain part of this i think too is like a statistic and this doesn't make it any less unfortunate but i think it's a statistical result of the human population you know, you have a certain amount of people who will just go nuts with something, mm. um, no matter what it is. Um, <clears throat> what's unfortunate, I think, is uh, obviously each of those cases is unfortunate. Like this man saying that, you know, he was trying to find out how to kill himself on his phone because he couldn't move. I mean, that's heartbreaking. It's awful. Nobody yeah. should ever have to be in that position. Uh, so I guess what, you know, where I feel defeated when I think about it is what do we do because well first of all you can't help anybody so once you have that realization it's like you know uh, you can do small things but what gets me kind of down is thinking about like just how huge all of these issues are like yeah so take this guy as an example he has to go through this digital detox period and then he comes out of it now he's free of the, the constant urge to game but he's got an entire uh, process of, of self-development and understanding and forgiving himself and going through all this kind of stuff just to be like a normal person and then he gets into like maybe developing relationships or if he happens to meet a woman or a man or whatever you know uh, like <clears throat> there's so much that goes into bringing a person back to a normal state and then you bring in all the stuff like you know all the external factors just the, the crazy uh, like um vibe in the, in the media right now where every time you turn on the news it's just nuts you know mm -hmm. and it's not like it was 10 years ago it's even worse uh, like just dealing with the stress of everyday life in that kind of situation I mean it seems overwhelming so <clears throat> I multiply that by all the people who have a problem with this it just is like wow uh, you know and I can see why it's it's being seen in like I, I guess you would say academic circles as a uh, as a clinical problem uh, because it's on that scale the uh, same as you know of course drug addiction has been a problem for for many many centuries so uh, you know this is this is a new one that we have yeah and that article about the five creepy ways that video games are trying to get you addicted he, he kind of ends the article with the fact that um, you know these games have become so incredibly efficient at delivering a sense of accomplishment that people used to get from say education or their career and now you know people are in these jobs that they're not happy with you know he even says you're probably reading this article at work because you're not satisfied <laughs> with your job mm -hmm. and so it's just like a window and then people keep going back to it mm -hmm. yeah well we've got another clip from the show should we play it yeah So the gaming industry went to what's called free-to-play, which basically you get the game and you can play the game. That's Bill Grosso, a gaming industry insider who founded Scientific Revenue to help companies maximize payments within their games. 
if you think about what a really bad game is, it's like the game that is completely non-addictive. Designing a good game is inherently trying to design something that people want, will want to come back to, will feel compelled to come back to. It's also helpful for making more money. As games transitioned to free-to-play, the selling of virtual goods became crucial. By 2016, Grand Theft Auto V had sold more than 60 million copies, but the free version, GTA Online, made more than $500 million on in-game microtransactions. My bigger issue, just besides the time, mm -hmm. was spending a lot of money just spending and gambling in the games. Mm -hmm. I will joke about it in the games. Like, oh, really? Like, oh yeah, I just spent $600. Yeah, they're getting their money there, ripping us off. But we would, we would joke about how they, they've designed the games to get you to play longer, get you to spend more money. Now I get to pay too much money to open loot boxes. Loot boxes amount to a randomized purchase that may or may not contain what you're looking for. It's very definitely the same thing as a roulette wheel, um, but it's, and it's very definitely aimed at sort of the compulsion and addiction side of the game, or, or of the human personality. I think loot boxes are straight up gambling. Um, it's something that keeps people coming back, keeps people grinding in the game, playing it longer and longer, and because you can't just buy what it is you want, you have to keep forking money over. Last year, one game company caught so much flack for the practice that they've advertised the game this year with a simple message. No loot boxes. Belgium declared loot boxes illegal gambling in April, and American politicians like Senator Maggie Hassan have also questioned the practice. Do you agree that children being addicted to gaming and activities like loot boxes that might make them more susceptible to addiction is a problem that merits our attention? So it'll be like 300, 400. And then it's like, okay, well, I'll keep going until I get it. And like, if I don't get it after a couple hundred dollars, then I, I would get like really depressed. And sometimes I would just keep going. Like I already spent 400, well, I'm just gonna spend until I, until I get it. Loot boxes are also one of the best ways to bleed whales dry. What is a whale? Um, so whale is industry terminology for someone who spends too much. <laughs> um, fundamentally. Um, it's one of those really unfortunate things in that um, it's really a piece of terminology that comes from Las Vegas. Um, whale was casino terminology for really, really big spender. Bill Grosso caught flack last year because as his website brags, his company works to turn free users into paid ones and keep more whales. But during our interview, Grosso walked that claim back. If you look at some of the coverage of scientific revenue, where people have said, you know, well, they spot whales and then milk them at the psychologically maximal moments. There's no truth to that. <laughs> None whatsoever. We're not that good. The claim remains on their website, and game companies remain focused on whales. They'll spend 10, 20, 30 grand for the people who keep the game alive mm -hmm. because they spend so much money. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't call yourself a whale? No, because I was more like a low. Because I did spend a lot with yeah. like eight grand in a year. And that's a lot of money. Of course, it's not just games. The reward systems built into games are also built into our phones, and no method is off the table in the battle for our attention. My name is Nir Eyal, and I'm the author of a book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir told me how to use gamification and psychology to make apps that will keep people coming back. So every hook starts with a trigger. A trigger is something in our environment that tells us what to do next. 
a ping, a ding, a ring, some kind of notification that tells us what to do. Then the next step is the variable reward. It's some kind of uncertain outcome that, that, that we're looking for, right? So scrolling the feed has this variable reward mechanism, just like pulling on a slot machine. And then finally, the investment phase, where we put something into the product, like data, followers, content, reputation, that makes the product better and better with use. Eventually, we're using the product because of an internal trigger. When we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we check Google. When we're uh, bored, we might check the news. We might check stock prices or sports scores to satiate that need. Three out of four American children have access to a smartphone and nearly half of American parents believe their kids are addicted to mobile devices. For now, both gaming companies and rehabs will profit, while gaming addicts are left with few resources for recovery. There's lots of evidence to support that contact with nature is actually very healing and reduces anxiety, reduce, you know, helps people concentrate. So we, we have them out in nature quite a lot. What was your favorite part of being here, like physically? Yeah, I tried to diversify because just not get caught up in like one thing and focus on that. Yeah. So I did, like most of the time was either spent either with music. I started playing piano here. I guess Saturdays we'll just go out, walk through there, go on hikes, or do different games, just like outdoor games. I think a big part of it has been actually working on the past stuff and actually like being open and vulnerable and talking about emotions and just recognizing my emotions and just kind of being able to deal with them more but also just the I guess just that sense of kind of being a little sad about how much time has been wasted yeah that's uh, definitely a sad story I mean it's great that he's in rehab but man and that totally is gambling, uh, 100%. Yeah. Just couched in a different thing. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. I feel like I know that impulse. I've had that with, uh, excuse me, i got a <clears throat> frog in my throat today. Um, I've had that with blackjack before. You go and you play, and, you know, you might come up a little bit. You're like, ah. Oh. And then you go down below what you brought in. And then you're like, I gotta get back there. And then you go down a little more. And then every time you go down, you're like, I gotta get back more. And then, you know, <laughs> and you lost a hundred bucks or whatever it is. It's like that feeling, you know, I, I consider myself fortunate to be able to experience that and then back away and be like, whoa, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people can't, can't do the backing away. Yeah, I think that's true because I, I remember I had one, um, kind of incident one time where some friends of mine had like a bunch of them had xboxes so they decided this was in the early days of xbox so they we all went over to a friend's apartment and networked them all and sat around playing halo and you know i was only planning on going over there for like a couple hours kind of playing for a bit and then leaving but i lost the entire day like it was gone i had plans <laughs> for the rest of the day like i was supposed to beat my girlfriend we were going to go for dinner and stuff and she kept on calling and being like where are you and i'm like oh yeah yeah, yeah you know just another 20 minutes or so or something like that but i had it, it was crazy because she was kind of like never do that again and i was like yeah you know you're right and it was kind of like i had that moment like you're talking about jonathan where it's like okay this is actually kind of dangerous and i think i better not do this anymore because that's just like yeah. that that's insane but it is like you know getting sucked into this kind of immersive thing i can see where like the addictive potential there and maybe that's why i kind of got scared off it and said okay I, i'm not going to do this anymore 
But I think not everybody has the wherewithal to necessarily step back from that, especially if maybe there's nothing in their life that's more valuable. That's kind of like they don't feel like they're missing anything necessarily by losing themselves in these games. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually the key, that there's nothing better going on than their lives. Because I used to play, uh, well, we had Atari, and then we had a Sega and Nintendo. And the last game I played, I don't even remember when Tomb Raider was really big. I played that for a long while. Hmm. And then I played The Sims, and then after that, I just had better stuff to do, like read and learn stuff and go out and actually have a life. I think I was in college or something at that time so games didn't really hold that much of an appeal for me but for a lot of people they they're pretty much the only appeal there is yeah yeah i got uh really into world of warcraft at one point in my younger days it was after (laughs) it was actually funny because you know you were talking at the top of the show jonathan about like dungeons and dragons and when i was a kid i was totally into that Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was fun, and you used your it's imagination, fun. and I do think there was, like, yeah. benefit to it. There was, like, a lot of creativity involved. And I think that that kind of is what kind of, like, it was a, a bunch of my old uh, D&D buddies who got into World of Warcraft, and they got me playing it. And I think one of the things that saved me, because I did get to a point where it's kind of like, okay, enough of this, I need to be more responsible and live my life now. But I think one of the things that kind of saved me is that I've never actually been very good at video games. So I think that I don't, I didn't see my skills improving a heck of a lot or anything. So it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like I had a lot invested in it. Like I had spent a lot of time getting good at it or something because I never was particularly good. So I think it was like that that was one of the things that saved me. So did your World of Warcraft guild members shame you into <laughs> staying or try and get you to stay? Because that's they another tried. thing that games do. Like the guilds will try and shame you and downgrade your character or something when you try and get away from the game. Or like if you're playing, I read that if you're playing Farmville or some other games, like if you don't log in after a while, all your your plants will go fallow and cobwebs and mice will start taking <laughs> over your house. Yeah. That's mean. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I did get some. They were very resistant to the idea of me not doing it anymore. I was kind of yeah. like, no, I, I don't think I'm going to play anymore, guys. They're like, oh, come on, man. Just play once a week. Just once a week. And I was like, no, I'm done. No more. Have you guys seen the, uh, the South Park episode about freemium games? <laughs> no. That's yes. a great one. I recommend looking it up if anybody... Wants to do that. It's a it's a really great episode. It's really apropos to all of this, especially to that last clip where they were talking about the little hits, the little rewards, you know. And pretty soon you've spent eight grand in a year. I mean, that's a really nice used car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a really nice not used cool. to yeah. used car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, like that guy said, he's on the low end of the totem pole. I can't imagine. I mean, you hear stories about you know gamblers dropping you know a million dollars in a night and things like that and uh, you know by the law of averages there's got to be gamers who do the similar thing um it's just wild yeah that's crazy i think i I have to think that there's an aspect to that where they don't like there's a disconnect 
or they don't value what would come from that money. You know what I mean? Like <clears throat> I've spent money on stupid things and, but generally I, I regret it, you know, <laughs> and I understand <laughs> that had I not, I could have done something more rewarding with that time. And I think there, there must be some kind of a disconnect. Like even just that guy, the, the eight grand a year, I mean, he could start a, a pretty good, uh, business with that money and it i mean by virtue of the fact that he's still around you know that means that that was his disposable income right so he was probably making decent money or however you want to look at it um, i think that's one of the things that's insidious about these games though is that you're not it's not like somebody's sitting there and they're like playing a video game and they're like well maybe i shouldn't spend this money on this because there are better things i could do with the money right. and you know mm -hmm. if i spend you know i think because it's so instantaneous and it's so in the moment like it's like they completely bypass your reasoning faculty that would be like yeah it's really stupid to pay money for this like this is <clears> this is a really dumb thing to do it's yeah. kind of like because you're you're not thinking i mean that's how they get you mm -hmm. yeah man i'm really glad i never got hit with that because i do have that tendency i'll get that with like mm. you know like fishing tackle and walk out of the sports shop like oh <laughs> shit i just spent 30 dollars on lures <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm sure it would happen with uh, in a, in any other context like that. But yeah, it really is. Um, I think if we, I wanted to back up for a second, look like kind of like the 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 larger view of what problems this is creating in our society. And I think, I don't know. I guess I was going to ask you guys. Think it's as dramatic as saying it's like, you know, uh, disenfranchising an entire generation. I don't know if it's really that dramatic, but. It's certainly a large portion. Well, I've seen figures anywhere from like 5% up to 12% of people who are actually gamers who are addicted. Yeah. So of that percentage, and I mean, the guy said in the, in the clip there too that it was, you know, if you consider that there's like 2.6 billion people playing games, like 9%, that's, that's a lot of people. A yeah. lot of people, a lot yeah, of people it is a that lot of people. have just checked out of life. But when you combine like these addicted gamers alongside people who just stare at their phone or on Facebook or Instagram mm -hmm. or whatever people are using uh, these days and other addictions that people have, that's just a huge chunk of the population that are just completely checked out. They're not even just participating anymore. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't know <laughs> what can be done. That's I think that is probably that's a really great point that is probably a much much larger percentage because i would put social media addiction into the same camp as gaming addiction mm -hmm. there may be different stimuli but uh, um, overall it's it's a very similar phenomenon yeah all you have to do is look around you mm. yeah yeah and even if you wouldn't say that they were addicted in the same way that we're talking about with gaming addiction it's it's on its way there you know it may sure. not significantly hamper their ability to hold down <clears> a job <throat> or to be able to pay the rent it's not as extreme as that but it's still operating via this similar sort of mechanism and although they can still sort of function to some degree in real life um, the time their free time is mostly occupied by this stuff and so um yeah i think like as as you've said it, the level of participation in reality is 
just so low now compared to where it would have been just a couple of years ago. You know, just yeah. just like say fifty years ago or something. It, it's bizarre. I mean, I wish I'd have lived. I wish I'd have been alive just before all of this technology and movies and all of this stuff had come out because I'd love to see what people were actually like because it's really quite strange when you go on to I was in London recently um, and it's it's bizarre when you're walking down the road and everyone is just glued to their phones or when you go onto the subway everyone is glued to their phones everyone is glued to these devices and uh, no one speaks to each other, you know. And it was amazing because I went to I went to India a couple of years ago, and getting on a bus or a train in India, it was absolutely bizarre because people would actually speak to each other, they'd have conversations <laughs> and form relationships and stuff. And that was really strange for me because, I guess, being quite young and growing up in this world, um, that sort of thing has become normalised. Even actually. To the extent that going to family gatherings, especially in the past sort of four or five years since smartphones really took off, um, and it seems to apply to the men, mainly the men in my family, um, it's interesting because you go to a family gathering, say at Christmas time, and most of the time, many of the males there are just sat there glued to their phones. And it's the women, you know, it's, it's, you know, the women of the family who, who are talking to each other and everything. I'm not saying that this doesn't apply to females as well, but I think that they are more acutely aware or more acutely driven to form social relationships. But it seems it's just it's just really bizarre. I just can't really quite put my finger on um, how, how on what's going on. You know, well, yeah, even true. if, even if all the gaming and the social media addiction didn't lead to any kind of negative consequences. negative consequences, just think of all the positives that are being missed out on, like all the wasted time that could be spent on actually creating something like think of yeah. all the inventors maybe we'll miss out on because they're so engrossed in these video games and they're like really smart guys maybe they would have turned out to be engineers or architects or did something fantastic or even like the interaction you have with somebody that you meet face to face and you interact with versus playing video games like who knows where that social interaction could lead so even if games didn't lead to like people committing suicide and you know, losing their jobs and everything, just the small things that we'll never know mm -hmm. are being missed out on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Thanks, Tiff. You so called everybody what, out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do we think can be done about this? Is there a solution? <laughs> Have we opened Pandora's box and there's no going back now? <laughs> uh, you do you mean on a on a macro level or take, on an individual take your pick. level? I think I think a uh, uh, a sort of intellectual revolution is too dramatic of a word. I think <laughs> that change is needed, and and um, it happens to be like the material that I'm listening to right now, but I do think that like the methods that Jordan Peterson is putting forward 
like mm-hmm. the 12, 12 rules for life book and like <clears throat> obviously a lot of that harkens back to like fourth wave material but i think he puts it in a really digestible way and mm-hmm. uh i think that is one solution if you can find some somebody like him or more people like him who are kind of like a father slash uncle figure who can articulately describe how to add value to your life and you're like whoa cool yeah. I, I can do that you know and it's not cheesy it doesn't mean i have to go to church and drink shitty coffee and like all this <laughs> you know it's like i can actually just you know because a lot of it the self-help stuff has that vibe to it it just seems like ugh, it's like uh but it, you know it, when i when you listen to him speak uh it's it's really powerful and i think that that i think that's one solution is that ha- having a a sea change of the young people in this country realize that, well i say this country but worldwide uh realizing that uh, they can add value to their life in the real world in a in a mm-hmm. much more dramatic way than they can by you know isolating um, so that's one but there's so many i mean so corporations are not going to stop making addictive games you know no. and i imagine that that behemoth as it continues to roll onward and and facebook's worth reaches a trillion dollars or whatever it's going to hit in the next 10 years you know and gaming companies are as big as movie studios it's just going to keep going that way so um you know it concerns me and this is going to sound a little bit tinfoil hattish but in the advent of some sort of situ call it civil unrest call it a meteorite call it whatever you want but in the advent of something where people are left without their daily conveniences and we have to do stuff like chop wood and carry water that mm-hmm. a lot of people are not going to even be able to to handle, you know, um, that prospect. Like, if you take yeah. a gamer out and tell them we're going to stack wood for an hour, it, you know, it's just not going to work. Unless he <coughs> likes Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a the, bit. The, the digital detox, like, mm-hmm. really, just even on a, a daily level. Like, I wouldn't call myself a smartphone addict or anything like that, but just turning off devices, you know, even before you go to bed or something small, which may seem insignificant, but, you know, it's what kind of freaked me out when we came out, the the game, you know, where you could play tennis or all these sports in front of a TV, I was like, well, I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't you just go out and play tennis? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe you didn't. So, so well, I think what? the digital detox is is a, is something that everybody could do, and you could start yeah. small. You could be realistic about it. Like, you know, no cell phones at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I think or, and like airplane mode, you know, during dinner, that kind of, so your cell phone might be... No, not even that. Just turn it off. Room. Just turn it off, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> you Put it in another room, at least. That's what I'm saying, if it's in the other room so that it doesn't, you don't hear it ring. But yeah, just turning it off. Yeah. But yeah. I think that you're right, though, Jonathan. I think maybe a, a real sea change is only going to be seen at the individual level as more and more people start kind of rejecting this and looking for true meaning, um, you know, like Jordan Peterson talks about, like it isn't something that you could really have a a macro level change over unless you just have like some kind of draconian law come in and say, we're banning this. It's not allowed. Yeah. Um, which I think would probably spark uh, really horrible consequences. So I think it is the kind of thing where individuals kind of need to, you know, 
realize that the quick hit, the quick dopamine hit, the the like unbelievable stimulation is actually not a good thing. And that um, more and more people will probably, I'm hoping, kind of realize this and kind of start trying to get value from day-to-day interactions and uh, and try and, and build something meaningful in their life instead of going for the quick chemical hit. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I just got cut off for a minute there, so I don't want to repeat. I'm sorry if I repeat anything that you just said, Doug. Because uh, I no cut in half half the way through, I was just gonna give my take, which might be described as maybe a little bit cynical. Um, <laughs> I I agree. I I think that a lot of what can be done is is really only in the realm of of your individual life. Uh, I think on a macro scale. I mean, for those inclined, while I whilst I agree, Jonathan it would be amazing if there were more people like Jordan Peterson and it would be even more amazing if there were more people who were receptive to that kind of thing mm-hmm. but and, and whilst there is such a, a large audience for someone like Jordan Peterson it's still a really small minority um, yeah. when you look at the the vast number of people on the planet and oh, yeah. there's just a part of me that just doesn't really see that many people are that way inclined. Uh, yeah. the, the way inclined to, to find value in their life, to take responsibility and to follow some of those recommendations that someone like Jordan Peterson would 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 advise to do. And so the way that I look at it uh, on a macro scale is quite depressing because it's kind of like well people are so stuck in their ways and I really don't see many of them giving up technology uh, gaming and and things like that Uh, I don't know if people necessarily have the have the will to do it whether they think that whether they have the whether they're that way inclined and so I personally think like outside as I said, on a macro scale, it's probably just going to get worse. But by taking the steps in your own life, as you guys have just been saying, you know, like the digital detox and, you know, identifying the triggers because we all have them. And those, you know, addictive tendencies, the the sources of the addiction, it's identifying those things and being honest with yourself and taking the necessary steps to sort of move away from that and making the choices in the right direction I think that is is really what um, what we can do or what we're concerned with here isn't it because um, in terms of changing the world and changing how things actually play out in reality I don't know if it's going to be possible Mm-hmm. Sorry to end that on like a depressive <laughs> note. It's just <laughs> no, I <laughs> don't think want to it's down on things. Yeah, and that's my, I mean, I feel like a similar way. Like if you were to ask me what my honest, like kind of brutal assessment is, is that we're just going to continue devolving, and there will probably be a small, a relatively small portion of of humanity that uh, has a you know their head on their shoulders and is trying to live a normal you know, stable life, but I, I, I really honestly only see it uh, getting worse until such a point as which there's like um, uh, a disassembling of the structure, of the power structures that are in place, and then everything is like up for grabs. That's that's my honest assessment of it. It's like super dark and pessimistic, so. <laughs> 
but I feel you, Elliot, on that one. It is like you know, <clears throat> a few people may be helped. Well, a few people will be helped, uh, just statistically. And 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 uh, as long as we have, not to say his name too much, but Peterson and, and other people like him, other people that are spreading a message of like you know, clean your room kind of thing, and get your life in order, that that will help a certain portion of the population. But I think that the the scales are tipping to the side of the, the majority being uh, unable to be helped, you know, mm -hmm. sucks. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. And, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. No, we, uh, we do have, we have a pet health segment today, so let's lighten the mood a little bit and go to that, and then we'll wrap Talk. up and then come back. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is, is there a disease that makes us love cats? Today, about a third of the world's population is infected with a strange disease called toxoplasmosis. And most of them never know about it. And while the parasite can multiply in practically any host, it can only reproduce sexually in the intestines of cats. Could this disease be the reason so many people love cats and keep them as pets? Hmm. Listen to the following recording to learn more about toxoplasmosis. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Is there a disease that makes us love cats? And do you have it? Maybe. And it's more likely than you'd think. We're talking about toxoplasmosis, a disease caused by Toxoplasma gondii. Like all parasites, Toxoplasma lives at the expense of its host and needs its host to produce offspring. To do that, Toxo orchestrates a brain manipulation scheme involving cats, their rodent prey, and virtually all other birds and mammals, including humans. Documented human infections go as far back as ancient Egypt. We found samples in mummies. Today, about a third of the world's population is infected, and most of them never even know it. In healthy people, symptoms often don't show up at all. When they do, they're mild and flu-like. But those are just the physical symptoms. Toxoplasma also nestles into our brains and meddles with our behavior behind the scenes. To understand why, let's take a look at the parasite's life cycle. While the parasite can multiply in practically any host, it can only reproduce sexually in the intestines of cats. The offspring, called oocysts, are shed in the cat's feces. A single cat can shed up to a hundred million oocysts. If another animal, like a mouse, accidentally ingests them, they'll invade the mouse's tissues and mature to form tissue cysts. If the mouse gets eaten by a cat, the tissue cysts become active and release offspring that mate to form new oocysts, completing the cycle. But there's a problem. A mouse's natural desire to avoid a cat makes it tough to close this loop. Toxoplasma has a solution for that. The parasites invade white blood cells to hitch a ride to the brain, where they seem to override the innate fear of predators. Infected rodents are more reckless and have slower reaction times. 
Strangest of all, they're actually attracted to feline urine, which probably makes them more likely to cross paths with a cat and help the parasite complete its life cycle. How does the parasite pull this off? Although the exact mechanism isn't known, Toxo appears to increase dopamine, a brain neurotransmitter that is involved in novelty-seeking behavior. Thus, one idea is that Toxo tinkers with neurotransmitters, the chemical signals that modulate emotions. The result? Fatal attraction. But mice aren't the only animals that end up with these parasites. And that's where humans and all of Toxo's other hosts come in. We can accidentally ingest oocysts in contaminated water or unwashed produce, or from playing in sandboxes or cleaning out litter boxes. This is behind the common recommendation that pregnant women not change cat litter. Toxo can cause serious birth defects. We can also get Toxo from eating undercooked meat from other animals that picked up some oocysts. And it turns out that Toxo can mess with our brains too. Studies have found connections between Toxo and schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and aggression. It also slows reactions and decreases concentration, which may be why one study found that people involved in traffic accidents were almost three times more likely to have toxoplasma. So, is toxo manipulating our brains as an evolutionary strategy to get predatory cats to eat us? Or are our brains just similar enough to a rodents that the same neurological tricks that lure them in catch us in the net too? And is toxo the reason so many people love cats and keep them as pets? Well, the jury's still out on that one. Some recent studies even contradict the idea. Regardless, toxoplasma has definitely benefited from humans to become one of the world's most successful parasites. It's not just our willingness to let cats on our dining room tables or in our beds. Raising livestock and building cities which attract rodents has provided billions of new hosts. And you and your cat may be two of them. So free goats? Yes. <laughs> or do they have It was definitely much lighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of our chatters said, hey, way to lighten the mood. <laughs> I feel so much better. <laughs> well, so I, I do want to like just loop back real quickly. I think one of the practical takeaways from today is the... Uh, the personal digital detox and just doing those small things. Um, just turning the lights down, you know, when you're in the evening, put your phone away, you know, whatever, two hours before bed, that kind of thing. Um, totally guilty of not doing that myself, but I'm going to try to take that away from, you know, as a good tip for today. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah lighten yeah. up. Lighten up. Lighten up. <laughs> Feel better. Yeah. The world's not ending. Well... Oh, that dog's barking here. Okay, on that note, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we will be back next week with another show. Okay. Bye, <laughs> Bye everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.